This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. This evening we are uh, beginning the final chapter of the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, looking this evening at verses 1 through 6. 13, 1 through 6. Hear the Word of God. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Let's pray. Father, we pray as we study your word this evening uh, that you would awaken our uh, minds tired at the end of the day. Uh, Lord, give us alertness mentally and physically to study your word and to benefit from this time of reflection on it. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews concludes with a series of practical instructions to God's people. Uh, The burden of the writer has been to, as we've seen, demonstrate the superiority of the new covenant over the old. Uh, Simpler in its forms, yes, uh, but more powerful in its application to our lives, living as we do after the Messiah has come, after Jesus has come. And, and lived and died and been raised again, our great high priest who offered up himself for our sins, uh, once for all time sacrifice, and has brought us to, uh, to God, reconciled us to God through his own shed blood and being sufficient, being the reality to which all of the lambs and bulls and goats pointed, uh, he need offer himself up only once and we are reconciled. Now, we've seen some practical application already, and actually along through the, through the entirety of the letter. But as we come to this final chapter, uh, the writer wants to, uh, to drive home some particular points of application that arise out of who Christ is and who we are in Him. Uh, we always need to be careful to make sure, uh, that we don't see the, uh, the ethical uh, instructions of Scripture apart from the grace of God in Christ. Uh, they're there, but they're part of the larger context. And so even as we study these, these instructions, we recognize that uh, implicitly, because of the context of where they are in Hebrews and in the entirety of the Bible, 
uh, that this is not moralism. He's not simply saying, be good, do these things, because it's good to do these things. He's saying, here is who you ought to be as God's people. This is what you should look like as God's new covenant community here in the world, citizens of heaven here in this world. And so let's look at some of these things that he has to say to us. They're, they're fairly brief. Uh, if we look at them, we could basically think of them under three headings, uh, all of them in a sense flowing out of the first one, let brotherly love continue. Uh, but the, the imperative of, of Christian hospitality uh, and then also the necessity of uh, marital purity and then finally the need in Christ for contentment. And so let's look at each one of those, beginning, of course, with the initial admonition, let brotherly love continue, which uh, in a sense is the topic, and the others kind of flow out of that. Uh, but the first thing he begins with is by saying, let brotherly love continue. The term brotherly love, of course, we're familiar with the city of Philadelphia, uh, the city of brotherly, show, uh, brotherly love. Uh, if you've lived there, you may think brotherly shove. Uh, but brotherly love, that's uh, the, the name, of course, Philadelphia means that. And the name occurs in the writings certainly of uh, also of Paul, also of Peter, taught throughout the New Testament. The love that, that characterizes us as followers of Christ. First uh, Thessalonians 4, verse 9, Paul writes to them, Now about brotherly love, we don't need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all the brothers throughout Macedonia, and yet we urge you brothers to do so more and more. The point here is not some uh, fellowship of humanity, but brotherly love in a very narrow, focused sense of our being brothers and sisters in Christ, and a love for one another that rises out of God's gracious and saving love of us. And it's a love that can be costly. Of course, First John, uh, the apostle, writes a great deal about love, and he points out that Christ's love was expressed in a very sacrificial way. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And he goes on to say, if we see someone in need, how can we not uh, avoid acting for their behalf? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. It's an active love, a costly love. And so he begins with that overarching admonition, let brotherly love continue. Uh, Maybe in their discouragement it was beginning to grow weak. Maybe the bonds among them were beginning to weaken. But so he says, don't just start. He says, let it continue. Keep at this. Don't give up. Don't become tired. Don't let this fall by the wayside. And so it's important as we begin that we recognize we are part of the body of Christ, that there are connections here. We should be committed to meeting and furthering the spiritual and even material well-being of one another. Of course, we see this illustrated in the book of Acts. Uh, Very early on in the days of the New Covenant Church in Acts chapter 2, we read, they all, all who believed were together and they had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belonging and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. There was a commitment there. It's illustrated that they were not going to let any one of their number be in need, be in want. They would do whatever it took to provide for one another. Uh, Now, this was not some form of Christian communism, 
Uh, rather, it was Christian community, and it was brotherly love in action. And so we should be committed to that. Now, it goes on with some of these specific ways that that, that might be applied. And the first one he mentions is hospitality. Uh, brotherly love in action means being committed to demonstrating Christian hospitality. Uh, do not neglect to show hospitality. Uh, even in this case, he says to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Uh, that was especially important in that day where inns uh, as such were usually filthy uh, and often uh, associated as being on level with brothels. In fact, many of them were brothels. Uh, not a place you really wanted to stay uh, unless you absolutely had to. And so among uh, even among the Greek culture, and certainly among the Jews as well as the Christians, hospitality was a very high virtue. Indeed, certainly for Christians, it was seen as a religious obligation. Uh, among the Greeks, uh, Zeus, the Greek mythological god Zeus, uh, it was called Zeus Zenos, Zeus, the god of the foreigner, the god of the stranger, uh, which sort of placed, uh, as he was sort of the head of their pantheon, uh, the emphasis. He was sort of the patron saint of the, of the stranger, the, the foreigner. Uh, the, the, the emphasis they placed on showing hospitality to the traveler, to the one from, from far away, to the stranger. Uh, Jews, of course, regarded Abraham for his hospitality, and uh, we as his descendants should show hospitality as well. Paul, in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, uh, as a quality for elders, indicates that they should be people who are given to the practice of hospitality. Now, you can imagine in a day like that, if people were travelers, it might be to their advantage. Uh, if they weren't Christians, to perhaps pose as Christians in order to receive hospitality. Uh, there's, a, there's an ancient uh, uh, manual for Christian living called the Didache, the teaching, uh, that addresses this. It has kind of a rule of thumb. How do you know if someone's a real Christian or just uh, using the name for what benefit it might gain them where hospitality is concerned? Well, this is what it says. Let every apostle who comes to you be received as the Lord, but he must not stay more than one day or two if it's absolutely necessary. If he stays three days, he's a false prophet. Of course, it reminds you of, uh, was it Ben Franklin's adage that uh, house guests like fish begin to stink after three days? Uh, well, the three-day rule seemed to apply much earlier than Franklin. And it goes on, when an apostle leaves you, let him take nothing but a loaf of bread until he reaches further lodging for the night. If he asks for money, he's a false prophet. So uh, just to kind of some guide, guides in evaluating those who come. And, and to encourage them, he reminds them, some have entertained angels without being aware. Obviously, a reference to, uh, to Abraham uh, there at Mamre and the, the men who came there. Uh, in Genesis 18, one of whom was none other than the Lord himself, angelic companions, and uh, much is made of, of Abraham's uh, efforts at hospitality. Uh, and we would have to note Sarah's involvement in that as, as well in showing hospitality. Now, of course, the writer of the Hebrews' point is not that you might actually be entertaining a, an angel or the Lord himself, uh, 
although, you know, certainly it's in God's providence that someone has come to you or that there's an opportunity to show hospitality, uh, but rather that the blessing may be more yours than theirs. Now, the situation has changed. In our day, hotels and inns are typically uh, at least tolerably clean. Uh, certainly uh, safer, certainly in, in most cases more desirable places to stay, and yet hospitality is still certainly a need and a, and a virtue among believers. I know some of you have, uh, have hosted missionaries uh, when they've been here, say, for example, for missions conferences. Uh, I myself have been uh, uh, a, a guest in people's homes for extended times, most notably when I was an intern in, in Birmingham back in seminary days, stayed with a family for the summer, which uh, was a great blessing to me, getting to know them and enjoy them. And when they were traveling, I was there just to kind of keep the house occupied, take care of things. And uh, while I was in Korea on a summer missions trip, staying with a number of the PCA missionaries there uh, for a weekend or occasionally longer while I was there. So, and within the context of the church, opening up our homes to people for meals, uh, hosting small groups, uh, some of those that uh, got going last week, and in other ways of showing hospitality and uh, the practice of brotherly love within the church. But we talk about hospitality, we also talk about its extension. And you look at verse 3, remembering those in prison. In a sense, this is an extension of hospitality, uh, going outside the walls of our home uh, to show the love uh, and concern of Christ, in this case, to those who were in prison. Uh, and most likely he has in mind something he's already referred to back in, uh, in, in chapter 10, uh, that they identified with those in prison. Verse 34, had compassion on those in prison, presumably because of their Christian testimony. Uh, Presumably this would be the same thing, although we could even say that to those who may be in prison, um, not because of their Christian faith, but because of crimes they've committed. Uh, what, a, what a great opportunity, and you're certainly familiar uh, with, with various ministries to those in prison. Maybe you've been involved uh, in those yourself, uh, but people in prison uh, usually are fairly aware of their wrongdoing, and uh, often uh, there are people who have come to Christ in the context of prison itself. But he mainly has in mind those who are brothers of Christ for their faith uh, are in prison uh, and maybe also mistreated since you also were in the body. And I take that to mean the body of Christ, although uh, we too have bodies and we know what it is to hurt or be mistreated uh, or whatever. So the expression of hospitality being extended outside the home uh, to those who need hospitality but are in prison, but we could even extend that even further to those who are prisoners in other ways. Think of those who are shut-ins, those who are not able to get out, those who are sick, those who are suffering in some way and have needs that you can meet. Those too, I think, would fall under this expression of, of an extension of hospitality, uh, not bringing people into the home, but bringing hospitality to those outside the walls of our home and showing the love and the compassion and the mercy of Christ to them in that way. Well, he continues on, let marriage be held in honor above all. We've looked at hospitality. Well, what about the integrity of marriage, uh, purity in the Christian life? Well, that too is an expression of brotherly love in a little different context. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. 
let marriage be held in honor among all. Uh, certainly the, the concept, the idea, the institution of marriage is one that should be honored, but an individual marriage itself is one that should be honored and protected, both certainly from the inside and the outside. Thinking about this and uh, thinking, how, how would we not do that? What are some ways that we would fail to honor marriage uh, and to defile the marriage bed? Well, one that may have been part of the original impetus here behind what he's saying is to deny marriage. Uh, the idea of asceticism, the idea that if you're really spiritual, you avoid marriage. You live the single celibate life uh, to deny marriage. Well, the scriptures address that. Paul, of course, commends the advantages of singleness in service to Christ, uh, even as he himself acknowledges that that is a gift the Lord has given to him. And if someone has that gift, that's great, and they can serve the Lord. And to the degree that they're single and not married, they are not concerned with pleasing their their husband, pleasing their wife, but serving the Lord. There's a certain unencumbered uh, nature to that life that frees one up to serve the Lord in ways that a married person could not. But, of course, Paul does not in any way mean to denigrate marriage. In fact, he recognizes that for most people, marriage is the plan that God has for them. So to deny it in this way as a, as a good gift of God uh, is is one way not to honor marriage. Another is to ignore it. Interestingly, in our day, uh, that is uh, in, seems increasingly common, that young people just aren't concerned to get married at all. Uh, they may live with somebody in a semi-monogamous kind of relationship or may live, sleep with many different people in a very promiscuous Way, but marriage for them just is not really something they're interested in, or maybe it's just a distant possibility. But basically, ignoring marriage uh, as as a purpose for someone's life. And unfortunately, uh, World Magazine, in fact, recently had an article uh, interviewing Christian young people in colleges and graduate school, and uh, that the difficulties involved in in dating or courtship. Uh, and how how do you know who the person is to marry? Many of them themselves coming out of broken homes, uh, and the church really not adequately impressing upon them the calling of marriage. That this is something to be sought. That it is something to be uh, pursued for most people, unless God has called someone to a single life. So ignoring marriage, either in an immoral way. Or maybe even in a Christian, from a Christian point of view, just not recognizing that as something desirable, something in most cases to pursue, to be pursued maybe earlier than later. Even among Christian young people, marriage being delayed uh, well into the twenties, even into the even into the thirties. Of course, a more obvious way of disobeying the instructions here in verse four is to violate uh, marriage through. Uh, most obviously, adultery, a violation of that uh, covenant, that exclusivity of that covenant that marriage entails. Uh, let the marriage bed be undefiled, but also violating marriage, not honoring marriage when a husband or a wife simply fails to treat their husband or their wife the way that they should, to be the husband that, that we should be to our wives or the, the wife that the woman should be. To her husband. Now, that's a lesser degree of violation of the marriage covenant, but it does uh, nevertheless break the instruction here of honoring 
marriage. It means not only maintaining the exclusivity of it, but maintaining the character of it, the nature of it, the relationship, the love of it. And then last, you can deny it, ignore it, violate it, but another way to dishonor marriage is to pervert it. Uh, certainly uh, need no reminder of that with the recent uh, decision of the legislature of the state of New York to honor so-called homosexual marriage. Uh, you do realize, of course, that there is no such thing as homosexual marriage. There can be a fictional, fictional entity created by the state, but uh, it is, in fact, a contradiction in terms. Nevertheless, uh, even recognizing a fictional entity by the state is, uh, is dismaying uh, and does dishonor marriage as a God-ordained institution. The state did not invent marriage. The state does not have the uh, prerogative to reinvent marriage. And so that's one way, obviously, uh, and more recently in the news, that uh, marriage can be perverted. But there are other ways. Polygamy is a perversion of marriage, a violation of that one man, one woman uh, bond that is marriage as God designed it in uh, the earliest chapters of the book of Genesis, earliest chapters of the Bible, with Adam and Eve being the, the pattern for marriage. Uh, less commonly, but also a perversion of marriage, polyandry. One woman married to many husbands or several husbands. Uh, you don't see that quite as much, but uh, that too being a perversion of God's design in marriage. So multiple spouses, multiple husbands, multiple wives, or uh, marriage within the same sex are ways of perverting marriage and, and violating what he says. That marriage as God defined, God ordained, is to be held in honor among all. Whether marriage is the institution or an individual marriage, which of course uh, does, means doing everything we can to promote and protect one another's marriages with a warning. For God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Sexually immoral being a more general description that could describe all kinds of sexual sin, uh, but then adultery being more specific, which, of course, strikes at the, the very nature of the marriage covenant. So brotherly love in action means pursuing every avenue for the health and success and strength of your own marriage, but also to encourage and protect and honor the marriages of one another. And then the last thing that he mentions here is brotherly love continue. gets a little farther afield from what we might think of as brotherly love, but it follows under that heading. Verse 5 has to do with contentment. Keep your life free from love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Interestingly, the quotation from Joshua chapter 1 where they're about to go in, and Joshua is now leading Israel, and that's God's promise to them. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. So we can say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Quoting from Psalm 118. Keep your life free from the love of money. Of course, uh, Paul writes about that in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, warning us uh, to be content. Those who have wealth, uh, not to love that wealth, not to be obsessed with it, but to use it, to do good. Use it to invest in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, and as Paul says, godliness with contentment is great gain. That is great wealth. 
If we're, if we have godly characters and we're content, we are wealthy people. We have great gain in this world. Of course, Jesus, Matthew chapter six, another six, Matthew six, first Timothy six, uh, Matthew six, Jesus uh, encourages us, uh, instructs us not to, not to worry, uh, about whether we have enough, what we'll eat, what we'll drink, what we're going to wear, all of these things. And he assures us our heavenly father knows that we need those things. Now, that doesn't mean we sit back and wait for them to fall out of heaven. We do pursue the avenues God supplies for securing those things, employment, labor, and so forth. But even in those things, we're trusting that our Heavenly Father will supply our needs because, he said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And the Lord is my helper. One of the avenues by which he provides when we are in need is through the church. It's an expression of brotherly love in action. Again, looking out for one another, helping to provide for one another. So let me ask you, brother or sister in Christ, is brotherly love continuing in your life? How is this, this brotherly love, this, this love that characterizes the Christian, this love that flows out of Christ's love for us, manifested in your life? Is it expressed in hospitality, either by drawing people into the home or providing for people outside of the home? I certainly hope it's expressed, uh, as he says uh, in verse 4, that marriage is held in honor and we do all we can to encourage and support one another in our marriages. And that we do everything we can to make sure that uh, concerns over the needs that we have in this world uh, don't become sources of anxiety or fear uh, or, or distress, uh, but trusting in the Lord and looking out for one another, we provide. How is brotherly love in action in your life and in your home? Let's pray. Father, we pray it would be. Pray it would be in my life. I pray, Father, that we would uh, not be turned inward in our attention and in our gaze, but that we would show Love for one another as Christ has loved us in these various ways. Father, we thank you for these words of Scripture and we pray for your grace to obey them and for your grace to forgive when we fall short. But Lord, fill us with your spirit. Help us to live as the body of Christ in this place. For We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.